Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. guest today has a long history of trailblazing. She played cricket for Australia, making 131 on test debut, a world record at the time. After hanging up her bat, she made the switch to the commentary box, from where she has covered matches around the world in both the men's and women's competitions in all formats. She was appointed to the board of Cricket Australia in 2019. Today's trailblazer is Melanie Jones. Melanie Jones, welcome to Trailblazers. How are you? I believe you're in exile north of the border while your home state is in lockdown. Oh, look, I've just been waiting for years for you to give me the call. (laughs) (laughs) I have. I've um, I've got a bruised back from patting myself on it for so much, getting out of Melbourne on Wednesday night very, very quickly. So in Sydney and and quite thankful. Well, you've had a torrid time of it throughout COVID in 2020 into 2021. You've been border hopping to try and stay where you need to be for work. Sum up what that experience has been like. Yeah, unique. Uh, I've been on the road pretty much since going full-time into media in in 2017. So I've sort of spent six to eight months overseas and travelling from hotel to hotel. And then all of a sudden I'm grounded in my own apartment, which I'd never spent so much time in before. The weirdest one was having to come to Sydney for the WBBL and having to do a hard quarantine in your own country. That was just, mm. it was baffling. It just couldn't make sense to me. Thankfully, I had a friend, half jokingly, but half serious, sent me a Wentworth hoodie, which I wore because even prisons <laughs> got out for an hour, you know. <laughs> it was just... It was, yeah, it was a whole different world, that's for sure. Oh, you'd make a great inmate. Uh, (laughs) So you turned down the opportunity to work on the Indian Premier League for 2021. Do you have a crystal ball? Yeah, I know, right? No, it was a mix of gut feel, things going on at home, knowing that I I still had my contract with the UK and my dad lives in London and he's getting on a bit and I haven't seen him for two years, so I wanted to protect Mm the opportunity of going there as well. So there was a number of factors sort of just lining up. There was, you know, quite a bit of stuff here with with Cricket Australia and the like. So everything just sort of pointed to as much as I, you know, I love going to to India, I love doing the IPL. There's one of those moments where you just go, you know, missing something for one year isn't, isn't the end of everything. And yeah, (laughs) the crystal ball came true again. So yeah, very thankful, but also... Yeah, daily, really mindful. My, my head does go back. I chatted to friends yesterday. And, and for us in Australia, we we don't really know anyone who's had COVID, let alone passed away from it. But friends in India, I know close friends have been in hospital, have had close relatives pass away. So it's, it's, it's really in your face there. Mm, the situation over there was quite frightening. In light of that, do you think the decision to actually proceed with the tournament was the right one? 
Look, it was an interesting one, and being on the board of CA now, you, you see things completely differently, and the conversation had probably for that tournament, you know, we'll never be privy to the extent of scope and research and, you know, what they could and couldn't do. I think what it started really well So in the two cities. It was as soon as they started to travel, it really just opened things up quite a bit more. So, you know, wonderful hindsight is that if they'd kept it, as is for the whole tournament, that could have been a better scenario in terms of the tournament itself. Certainly not saying that, you know, the, the cases within India itself wouldn't have impacted. And they had, they've got a World Cup, a T20 World Cup coming on, so they wanted to prove that they could host multiple teams and then travelling around the country. So there was all those pressures as well. What lessons learned, do you think, for the Tokyo Olympic and Paralympic Games? Yeah, look, that, that's a whole different one as well, isn't it? Because I think for India and the IPL is that the country loves its cricket. It wanted the IPL on it in a lot of ways. <laughs> and, it, and it allowed people to stay at home, which is obviously something that they, they were desperately wanting people to do to stop people sort of moving around. Um, Tokyo Olympics is in a completely different space there, isn't it? With, you know, a lot of the, the general public not wanting the event on. So <laughs> that's a whole different, you know... Um, set of circumstances on that front. Look, it's a tough one. And I think from what I have learned within Australia too is that, you know, hats off to the national sporting bodies within Australia. I think they've been really collaborative in the way in which they've spoken to each other about this. It's not a competition anymore between sports of, you know, who does things better. I think we're getting better at making sure that we're sharing all the intel. So if anything, you know, I feel very confident in the people sort of looking after our our national sides um, and Olympic team that, you know, they'll be in the best place possible. Well, I know you're not headed to Tokyo. You're actually headed elsewhere. And we'll talk about that in a moment. But what are you up to at the moment? Uh, Do I hear you're starting the push-up challenge today? (laughs) I've just taken a sip of my drink as well, and that will probably be one of the last times I'll be able to lift my arms to my mouth. (laughs) Yeah, we've recently, with with Cricket Australia, we commissioned a few reports into the mental health of our our players right across the board, and it was very tough reading. It was really confronting, and it it goes to show that we've got, you know, a serious issue on our back doorstep, not just for cricket, but I think for society. So in reading that and, you know, having really close friends going through their own mental health issues is that, you know, it's sort of daily we're having these conversations but I don't think we're probably sometimes we're not having them in the right way or not enough so for me it was the the push-up challenge you know allows me to to spread the word a little bit and get some really positive conversations happening around mental health while attempting to lose the fedubitas on the back of the arms and tone up a little bit so 3,318 push-ups in 25 days it is and that, that that number 3,318 is the number of Australians that took their own lives in 2019 wow. so yeah look it I mean we sort of joke about it a little bit we've got a team stump out stigma at the moment and there's jokes going around but it's a very yeah obviously a very serious topic but one that I think yeah it's just my way of being able to to open up the conversation a bit more. The cause though is is something that's so front of mind and as we speak we've just heard uh, Naomi Osaka withdrawing from the French Open and stating uh, mental health reasons. Do you think we really need to learn how to look after athletes better? Oh 100% yeah without a doubt not just athletes people and and the way we talk about it it was interesting I remember when she won the Oz Open for the first time. And I'm, I'm embarrassed to say this myself, but I was one of those people that sort of said, oh, you know, come on, Naomi, give us a bit more, you know, when we don't really know about her, you know, and she is an introvert and you wanted to hear all these, you know, comments from her post winning it, but she was just, she, you know, herself was just sort of taking it all in and trying to, to work it out in her own head in her own space and time. Um, mm. And 
that's fine because it's not about us. As much as we think we we own them and, you know, we think we've put them on this, you know, successful path and it's the reason why they've got all this money. They are, they're an individual that, you know, goes through highs and lows like everybody else. And, And the more we can, and I think there's still a, you know, we say mental health, but it encompasses so many different areas, doesn't it? So it's easy in one sense just to go mental health, but in another sense, it it probably to some people, I think is, this is why we struggle with it, is I think a lot of people think of it as an excuse Mm. or because they, um, you know, their own education into it. So yeah, really tough for her, but also so, so brave. Mm. Um, And, you know, just looking at the social media and the commentary around it, is that I think, you know, a lot of other athletes are certainly coming out in support because, you know, they're either, they're either face it themselves or know that they, they potentially could in the future as well. What's interesting now is that uh, given the profile of some of our female athletes and particularly tennis players, I've got to say, there's there's much more support and sponsorship for women's sport. Where do you think we are in, in that space? Is it easier than ever to get coverage and, and a bit of mileage for our female athletes or have we still got such a long way to go? Oh, a little bit of A, a little bit of B, I think. Um, <laughs> Hedge your bets. <laughs> I, yeah. I worked um, for TLA, sports management company, um, a few years back. And uh, my business partner at the time was um, Alison Cook, now Alison Tranquilly, who played with the mm-hmm. Opals back in sort of the Michelle Tins era. And, you know, we would we would bang our heads against a brick wall almost to try and get people not, not even to sponsor the female athletes we were looking after, but just to at least have a look at the the opportunity, <laughs> you know, mm. and we'd get pictures come through our across our desk saying that they wanted a, a male fifty five with a beard, you know, <laughs> and I'd still be putting some of the netball and basketball girls through <laughs> just to try and open up the conversation about it. Whereas is now it's, it it is completely different. I think um, it has opened up so many doors from the playing side of things. So I think the visibility has been a, a massive game changer for that. The fact that, you know, we've got our domestic leagues, you know, the WBBL, the W League and the WNBL and all these um, competitions, AFLW on television and on radio and the likes um, has shifted things on that front. So that's column A. (laughs) Column B, though, is one where I look at it from a a governance, leadership, senior decision-making platform. And I, I feel as if we've, We've just started to climb a little bit of a hill. And I think the, I said to my mum the other day, I said, someone said, oh, the system's broken. And I said, oh, I don't think it's broken. I think it's just working the way it was designed to. And I think there's there's a little bit of a pushback at the moment, particularly within the senior management and decision-making. Like I saw that the, the FIFA World Cup CEO was announced, Women's World Cup was announced yesterday, and it's a gentleman from, from New Zealand. And mm-hmm. I'm thinking if any time we had an opportunity of hiring, and people say, well, it's on merit and, you know, <laughs> There are, mm. there are women out there that can do this job exceptionally well. Um, that that's the area that I think I think we're, we're really struggling in. When you lose for and the debate about whether they should or shouldn't have been in the role is, is another thing. But when you lose Raylene Castle, Lee Russell, Gerald Rector, Jody Hawkins from senior national bodies, uh, all in the last eighteen months, that that's a worry for me. You're listening to Trailblazers with Stephanie Brands. We're chatting with cricket commentator Melanie Jones. MJ, you were born in the UK, correct, English mother? Shush, shush, shush. <laughs> Not in an um, ashes year. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Um, no, Aussie mum, 100% Aussie. No, mum mum grew up in Rutherglen in Victoria. Um, and when you go back on mum's side, we had um, people on the Burke and Wills Trail up through my wow. nan's side. So, yeah, great uncle fought in Ambon for Australia in the Second World War and the like. So very strong, long history on my mum's side here. Dad was born in Trinidad in the West Indies, and they met in England. So hence me being born over there, but I was only three months old when mum and I came back to Australia. So All right, re- relax. You've, you've, you've established yep. your, your Australian credentials. You, your dink, <laughs> dinky die. Uh, now, Dad stayed behind in the UK when mum brought you here. Why was that? Because I was one of those massive, massive surprises. So it was, <laughs> <laughs> certainly so I wasn't, I wasn't planned. So mum was always wanting to come home. She was over there teaching and, and Dad was never going to leave England kind of thing. So it was just, yeah, it was one of those things. I didn't meet him until I was 16. He came out here for the first time. So How was, weird was, was that? Oh, yeah, completely weird because the plane landed and it was one of those things, like you remember, this is years ago now, so there was no mobile phones Mm. or or the like. So I'd gone out to the airport twice and his plane was delayed. (laughs) And so the third time I'm thinking, uh, you know, is this actually ever going to happen? And the plane landed and I'd seen photos of him and and the like, but there's not a word of a lie, three tall black men walked off the plane (laughs) all pretty much at the same time. And I'm like, hmm. <laughs> so I just stood there and smiled, and sure enough, we really found each other. And <laughs> that is hysterical. But but that really that segues nicely into to what I wanted to know what it was like for you moving. Well, you were a baby, obviously, when you arrived in Australia, but you moved mm. and grew up in a predominantly white city. How did you feel yeah. like as a kid? You don't. I suppose you only know what you know in some way. So you know, I, I take my hat off to my grandparents. Like I said, I came from Rather Glen, so I think. When mum grew up there, it was mm. probably a town of 500 people. And it was it was a culture shock for them, for, for their daughter to, you know, come back with a illegitimate child that was, you know, of colour and the like. So I think everyone grew up very, very quickly in in some way. Yeah, yeah Melbourne was, was a white city to the point of, you know, when you often see combi van or V-dub drivers sort of wave to each other? Mm. That, that was like me in the street. Like if you saw someone else of colour, you'd sort of each other and just sort of give, give a nod of recognition almost <laughs> to say, I see you, how you going? Oh, <laughs> that's, that's brilliant. It's, it's so different now, yeah. So it was, it was, it was almost like sometimes I was either, you know, the point of difference and quite unique and, you know, American sport was starting to really take off. So I was sort of a bit of a, you know, flavor of the month in a sense in some mm. ways. But then on, on the flip side, you'd get the absolute opposite and you'd, you'd cop the, the racism and, mm. you know, the in-your-face stuff. It was, it was also, it was probably the subtle racism as well. It probably it was almost like a death by a thousand cuts sometimes with, with that side of it, is that it would just sort of build up to a point where you'd sort of, you know, you'd just have enough and you'd, you'd blow up, you know, people following you around, you know, mm. shops and shopping centres and all those sorts of things. Mm. But my mum, I, I know she protected me a lot from it, which I'm thankful for in, in, in a lot of ways. But it does make me a lot more mindful of people. It's probably why I do what I do, I guess, in a lot of ways, with, mm. you know, whether it's being a board of Cricket Australia or just with my own club side of just trying to make things as inclusive as, as possible for people. Mm. And how did your love of cricket start? Like probably any Aussie kid back then, it was backyard cricket with my six male cousins. So I, I bowled a lot those as those summers at Nanapa. Tell, tell me it was at the metal garbage bin. Yeah, it was. Sounds it so was. much better than a wheelie bin, got to tell you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it was, and it was, it was wonderful rules whereby, 
if I par grew um, chrysanthemums for the Rutherglen show. So if you hit them, you're automatically out. If you hit Nan's chooks, you're out for the summer. It was, you know, the the sheep were out on the hills hoist. I had the angled Malcolm Marshall run up, but if they weren't, I had the very straight Michael Holding run up. It was all those kinds of things. Is that um, how you set your field? Really <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and Dad, Dad knew all the West Indian boys from from England, so when they toured. He would get Joel Garner or Malcolm Marshall to, you know, sign magazines or get me some tickets and the things like that. So they were, I mean, they were it in a bit back then, you know. Just and the rest. Like. It was yeah. Just, yeah. So they were winning. So naturally, anyone asked me, I was West Indian and I was, yeah, <laughs> I was supporting, I was supporting them through the, through the 80s. Absolutely. So, yeah, was that absolutely kind of an, a, was that kind of an epiphany for you to see these guys playing cricket and you're like, they're my people? Yeah. A hundred percent. It was like, I look like you guys, yeah. you know, and it was, yeah, it was. And, and no wonder, you know, when I was growing up, I, I just loved sport. I did little laughs and, and everything. So I was, you know, Merlene Otty from Jamaica throughout the, you know, the eighties <laughs> and nineties kind of thing. Um, Daly Thompson, you know, from England and the decathlon. It was all those guys and girls that I followed because it was, it was a look thing, you know, and I felt, you know. There's, you there's some awesome heroes to have. <laughs> Not too bad. Yeah. <laughs> Notice I didn't say Eric the Eel, but yeah. <laughs> not, not, not a swimmer then, huh? <laughs> no, definitely not. <laughs> so you started playing cricket. It wasn't really a chicks game back then. How did you get no, your experience? No. Well, I went to um, I went to Elwood High School in, in Melbourne and I had a geography teacher who loved his cricket. Um, he was an English guy and he, he got well, lucky enough to have a couple of girls that were into the game. So he got a team together, which was just unheard of back then. And he took us on a, a tour of New South Wales and a tour of New Zealand. And then he got us involved in, in a local club. He, he sort of sourced it all out. And the amazing part about it all is his name is John Hanscom. He's the dad mm. to Peter Hanscom. Um, <laughs> so it was just it was just this sort of, you know, lives coming back around full full circle at times. So it was just it was sheer chance by that he got us in, involved in a club. Otherwise, I would have been probably playing basketball or volleyball or ass or Wow, that's seriously uh, serendipitous. You yeah. don't get into the national team through luck. How did how did you no. get on that radar? <laughs> luck in the sense of that some of the people you meet along the way. So I, I ended up at, at Richmond Cricket Club, which is now no longer, but at that club we the likes of people like Sue Jill and, and Sharon Treadray. Mm. Sharon Treadray, you know, Hall of Fame, one of mm-hmm. the best cricketers we've ever seen. So And, and Sharon wasn't a a coach or teacher by, you know, taking you under your wing. A lot of it was just, you know, by what she did and you watched her and you learnt and, um, you know, she had this very narrow stance batting. So, of course, then I had a very narrow stance, you know, <laughs> you've got to be your idol kind of thing. And then had some had some wonderful coaches along the way. Lynn Denham, who used to play for, for Australia as a coach of our mm. state team. Glenn Murdoch as well. Ken Davis. They were, you know, fantastic people. Um, and I, I got through into a, a team that was, I mean, we speak about our Australian women's team at the moment and their magnificent record-breaking run. They beat ours of 19 recently. But, you know, when you're playing with Belinda Clark and Catherine Fitzpatrick, Karen Moulton, Lisa Hartley, those players, it's just, yeah, I mean, it's enjoyable, but you've been pushed and stretched every single training session. Mm. Um, and I think that was a part of, of you know, where, why my game got to where it was. Well, it got to a century on debut against the country of your birth. That's not too shabby as an introduction to Test cricket for Australia. <laughs> Memory still as sharp on on that moment. Some, uh, I know Julia Price was talking about it. She she just had this big sigh because way back then, 
cameras weren't digital. They were the ones where you actually took up film. So I was in the <laughs> 90s for a while. So she went through a few few rolls of film trying to wait for the moment. <laughs> You're on reel to reel. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I remember, this is, this is not helping my case here, but it was an absolute road at Guildford. It wasn't a green scene <laughs> by any stretch of imagination. But I do remember it was my first ever 100. I've never scored a 100 for club or state. And we didn't play... We only played two-day cricket and, you know, one-day cricket for the for the most of it. And I remember I remember I got into the 90s and I thought, I've never been here before. What do, what do I do? <laughs> so I was sort of, I've gone fine. I was, I was fine up until then. And then your, your brain starts to take over, doesn't it? And it starts all this doubt. And thinking, why am I doubting myself now? I've, oh, never's <laughs> 90s. No. <laughs> and I remember I about 12 deliveries, I middled the ball but middled it straight to fielders. And I'm mm. thinking... This is not good. And I took myself back to my, my grandparents' backyard. And we used to have this spiky bush um, sort of sort of around the cover point region. And if you hit that bush, you could run forever because it would take, <laughs> you know, your cousins ages to get the ball out because it would cut your arm. And I just went, I said to myself, visualise the spiky bush. And it was basically in a gap. And seriously, that next ball got it through and got the 100 and I think, oh, I was like, thanks, Madam Park. <laughs> Outstanding. Uh, what, no. what was your celeb? Oh, well, again. As in, as in out in the middle? Did, did, did you kiss yeah, the badge? No, no. I hadn't done it before. I didn't, I didn't know what to do again. So <laughs> it, was, it was very awkward. And thankfully it wasn't, well, back then we went on television. So there's, there's nothing to say that it wasn't the best ever. So I should just make up something absolutely outstanding. You just a backflip spin, into a spin whatever you want. <laughs> absolutely. Sam Kerr-esque backflip and uh, yeah. round down the pitch, kissing the badge on the That's helmet. That, that'll work because there's no one on Twitter to give you a roast. Um, <laughs> yeah, correct. <laughs> so, so when you... But I did have the bag of green on, so I, uh, I, I did give it a kiss. Ah, excellent. So as a player, when you start with such a successful innings, do you ratchet the pressure up a notch? I suppose it depends a little bit on, well, one, yourself, but then to the people around you as well. Um, and I mentioned a few pretty good names there. And we had a great coach in John Harmer. And his, his philosophy always was about just trying to stay in the moment. There's always, always an enjoyment factor about playing the game and about training. Um, and he just kept it really real for us. So that, that certainly helped. Uh, we, it was, we were on the Ashes Tour of 98. Um, and we had, you know, we had ODIs and all these things to go. And we were just so happy to be playing oh, like a full tour that, the other part of it, I think, also was that we were all all very keen on each other's success as well, as much as cricket's probably the most individual team sport going around. Mm. So you could sort of take the focus off off yourself a little bit. I probably, you know, to this day, I say I probably didn't wasn't the player that I wanted to be by by any stretch. And I could have, you know, you look back on things and hindsight's a wonderful thing that I, I would have done, you know, a number of things a lot a lot differently. Um, so I sort of got dropped and got really picked in the Australian team numerous times and did all those sorts of things. But the weird thing is I actually think it's helped my commentary a lot because I've gone through sort of the full roller coaster ride. So you can sort of understand a little bit more of where players are at and, and what they're going through, which hopefully means that um, I'm not like a Naomi Osaka horrendous journalist asking stupid questions at the end of the day, <laughs> but asking questions that are a little bit more thoughtful and, and mindful of where the athletes are. You're listening to Trailblazers with Stephanie Brands. Melanie Jones is our trailblazer today. So, Mel, how did your time in the national cricket team come to a close? Um, we won the World Cup. Won the World Cup in <laughs> That'll 2005 do it. <laughs> in, in South Africa. <laughs> 
and I remember, it's funny, it's, it's weird what you remember from some big moments like that. I remember finding, a, it was a, it must be my tax return from the year after because we got taxed on our winnings and after tax, we all got, I think it was something like $357.78, which I think went over the bar that night, to be honest. So, it wasn't like, <laughs> so you know, it was such a different world back then. Um, so, yeah, I played that World Cup and then, then I got dropped from, from the Australian team after, after that tournament and, yeah, never got back in. So... A nice way to finish in terms of <laughs> the mm. trophy, not a not an overly nice way to think that that, that was your last game. No. So did you find that transition out of the playing career difficult? Again, completely different world. We were all full-time work back then, so you'd, you'd sort of manoeuvre your day around trainings mm. as much as you possibly could. But, um, you know, we had doctors and, you know, people studying law and all these sorts of things at, at different sort of phases of their life. So the transition was... All of a sudden, I found more time um, to your actual career. You know, I, I went to Victoria University and did human movement, and then did a grad dip in teaching. So I, you know, I taught for a year and then got into cricket Victoria and then into sports management before the media side of things. So it wasn't like I missed, and I was still playing state cricket. So I was still getting the enjoyment of playing the game um, without all the added extra pressures of you know playing at a national level. Mm. Um, so it was just more so like a bit of reclaimed time more so than anything else. But I think for us back then, you know, your your identity wasn't purely around being an Australian cricketer because there was all these other things going on in your life. And that's probably one of the big differences now for mm. for athletes that their identity is is their sport in so much in so many ways. So that's probably a heck of a lot healthier back then, uh, that mentality. Well, but, yeah, uh, not not so I much the finances. <laughs> no. No, not at all. You know, when you I, I can remember going away on a, on a tour and one of the players got picked on her debut and she lost her job at a sports store because she took two weeks off to tour <laughs> New Zealand. <laughs> oh, seriously, uh, only, only in women's yeah. sport. Uh, how about yeah. <laughs> your entree into the commentary box? We spoke about the uh, serendipitous elements around your cricket career. Was it pure happenstance you ended up in commentary? Yeah, I, I I do thank Mark Jennings every time I see her. She was the selector for Australia back in 2001. She didn't pick me for a, an Ashes tour, um, but I happened to be in England, and it was the first time that Sky and the ECB started to televise women's cricket. So it was a one-off game, which they did, I think, for five years. And they needed an Australian voice, and I happened to be there. And so they asked me, and I said no. I said, it's not, well, why would I want to commentate on a game that I want to be playing in? And they said, oh, well... We're paying you 300 quid. And I said, oh, tell me where, when and what to wear. <laughs> You're so easily won <laughs> over. Yeah. I was getting paid more than the girls playing. So I'm yeah. thinking, this is great. I could rub it into them. <laughs> and I can remember the day because I came away from it absolutely hating it because, and, you know, not to say these guys I, I know more now and, and understand them, but they just didn't want to be there. It was like a punishment for them to commentate on women's cricket. So mm. it was Paul Allett, um, Bob Willis, David Gower, and Graham Fowler, and Charles Colville. Mm-hmm. So all, you know, sort of part of the establishment in so, so many ways. And here's me thinking, you know, I was, I was actually really quite excited to do it and thinking, mm. oh, here's, here's my game on TV. I want to pump it up. Mm. And I came away just going, if, if that's commentating 
women's cricket. I never never want to see yeah, a commentary and, box. And just think, count, count me out. There has been some progress in that department with the likes of yourself and Lisa Stalaker, Alex Blackwell, Isha Gua, Alison Mitchell. Having you ladies as former players introduced and rightfully taking your place, it makes so much sense. Uh, did you feel at any point like a fish out of water, apart from that that, that one first experience? Uh, yeah, many, many times. I mean, the, the first time we had the four female commentators in the IPL 2015 was a nerve-wracking one because it was, it was Ishigua, Lisa Salaka, Anjum Chopra and myself. Mm. And I, th- I think the biggest thing for us still back, back then, and this has been probably one of the big changes, is that if, if we stuff, if any of us stuffed up, it was, oh, why are we hiring females? Mm-hmm. So it was, it was a blanket. Don't don't hire female commentators in cricket because this one person stuffed up. Mm-hmm. Whereas now, fast forward, you know, six seven years later, if Mel Jones stuffs up, it's Mel Jones, which I'm mm-hmm. so thankful for. It's not me being reflective of of all the other females in the game. So I think we've sort of moved on from that scenario. Um, but I, I also remember saying, <laughs> I think it's probably said it to Mum. Uh, it's great over here with the IPL, and this is 2015. I, I feel like one of the boys, and the boys would say that as well. And you feel you feel that that's the right thing to say, but what it was what it was was they were allowing you into their space, but there was sort of no shifting of the space to for you to be be yourself. So you're still probably restricting what you said and how you said and who you were, mm. just to try and fit in. Mm. Um, and I think now I think the biggest shift was Dave Barham leading. Channel 10's coverage of the Big Bash, where all of a sudden it was a space for, for everybody mm. and everyone had to to find a way to, to, to make it work for everybody and, and not only just everyone working in it, but everyone listening to it as well. Mm. Um, and hopefully, I think, you know, Australia's probably led the way in some ways in that space, which is really nice. Well, I did oh, my absolutely. Google stalking on you, uh, MJ. You did bowls commentary. How did I not know that? Are you a handy lawn bowls competitor? <laughs> Well, Nanampar Jones, um, Rutherland <laughs> Bowls Club, um, and Sunny Downs was the president of Lawn Bowls Australia back when Nanampar were bowling. I ended up at the um, World Bowls Champs in South Africa when I was over there doing some cricket development, met the, the team from the Norfolk Islands, so they invited me along. So I had a lot of touch points, and then I was on the board of Bowls Australia for a couple of years. Mm. Um, so then, yeah, commentated the... Uh, the Bowls Premier League, um, and absolutely loved it. I think it's a, yeah, I think it's a fantastic sport. Full stop. People involved in it are uh, outstanding. Um, so yeah, had a, had a lot of fun. Mm. And the the lawn bowls athletes. I know when I speak to them prior to uh, Olympic or Com Games or those sorts of competitions, it's uh, uh, they've got this cycle where they get their day in the sun, as it were, uh, every now and then. Fortunately yeah. for our female cricketers that has changed significantly and that CBA that saw the income increase uh, to such a a good level, I'm not going to say an enormous level, but a a decent wage-paying level, that was a pretty seismic moment for the game. What was it about cricket that saw it pave the way in the money stakes for female athletes? Because they really were the forerunners. Yeah, um, strategic vision. Yeah, I think there's probably, well, I'm not too sure, and I'm going to have to cast my mind back here, um, which one came first. I think the... James Sutherland, underneath James Sutherland, there was certainly a, a piece about um, enhancing and developing uh, women in the game. And 
it's probably up for debate whether or not it was done for the right reason or the, the smart reason. <laughs> you know, the right reason being, well, we haven't looked after the, the women's game for so long, and, and we need to we need to correct things. Or the smart reason is in the commercial dollar. But either way, it um, it really started to pave the way. And I think that's the it comes back to that saying, isn't it? You know, you sow a seed and you water the pot plant, and you're like, well, where's my where's my bloody tree? You know, oh. <laughs> it doesn't happen straight away. You've got you've got to actually invest some, some time and effort into it. So we had. We built off, and it was just good timing in around 2015 when the WBBL started, that things, the build was probably 10, ten solid years of, of building up until that point where you could really capitalise on, on that moment in time where women's sport was really starting to, to gather some momentum. So that sort of gathered, then, yeah, the MOU comes through and uh, between the Players Association and Cricket Australia, you get sort of that over the line and then you have, some, you know, the uh, paternal policy as well that came through so there's been a, a really nice um, synergy the way in which things have worked and I think you know without sort of gloating too much on the cricket side of things I think it's been a nice flow and effect to, to the way in which other sports have looked at how they're developing the you know their women's competitions and their governance structures and leadership and, and all those sorts of things as well. So do we get to a point one day where there's equal pay for men and women or is that just utopian? We do Steph, we do. Yes, we is it do. In, is it why, in our lifetime? Why are we doing we do? <laughs> That's a different question. <laughs> you uh, alluding look, to our age? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think when you look at sports, I mean, surfing—they've certainly turned a, a, a massive corner, and you're seeing more and more instances of, across the world now. Tennis, as well, have, have certainly done it on the Grand Slams and the likes. That there is instances of it, isn't there? Um, team sports and traditional men's team sports are probably, you know quite quite a way behind but um at the same point in time i think if you don't if you're not reading the room in society more broadly these days um you're going to be on the wrong side of history aren't you so i think there's push from external and internal now to make sure that we can hopefully do it before we're we're six feet under Steph. you're listening to trailblazers with stephanie brands uh, Melanie Jones is chatting with us today. And Mel, advocating for women in sport has always been part of your DNA, really. You're a schools and female development coordinator for Cricket Victoria back in 2005. Part of the push for Pathways. Was that rewarding work or did you find some of that intensely frustrating? Um, there was a frustration massively because I always wanted to go into coaching. Um, <laughs> so I sort of got the job under the proviso that I was going into high performance. And then, yeah, five years later, I was still in game development. I was still looking around going, hang on a minute. <laughs> hang on, where do, where do my aspirations of becoming, you know, the coach of the Australian women's cricket team, mm. <laughs> where'd they go? <laughs> so, you know, what I did love about it was I got the chance to work with some amazing people in the field, both in, in the city and, and country areas of Victoria. And you got a real sense of just people's passion in the game. And I think that certainly has stayed with me and has, probably one of the drivers for a lot of my decision making you know particularly at the board level where you're not just always constantly thinking about as much as you do at the moment with bottom dollar of you know mm. financial stability mm. and the like is that at the end of the day it's about people who love the game and if we if we can't get our heads around making decisions for that then we've you know we've gone well and truly off path in a lot of ways so mm. yeah that time doing game development in schools and you know girls cricket was yeah, a, a big part of my foundation, I think. Well, you spent six years also as an ambassador for Red Dust. Uh, such important work that organisation was doing. Is that what drew you in? Uh, yeah, I'd, I'd seen and heard about them when I was at university. So they're a, 
and I did a minor in health studies in Indigenous health when I was doing my human movement course. So I wanted to try and see it, see health in action in a community. So I, I sort of did a bit of, well, it wasn't Googling back then. I'm not even too sure what it was back then, but found Red Dust. Encyclopedia and, Britannica. Um, <laughs> yeah. And, yeah, they're a health promotion charity that work in remote Indigenous communities and they use predominantly athletes, but they've branched out more and more into music and the arts and getting people to role model for young Indigenous kids on having an active and, and healthy lifestyle. So Was it an eye-opener? Oh, yeah, hugely. And, you know, we, we as role models go into the community supposedly being the ones to instill good behaviour and, you know, open up kids' eyes. And to a person coming out of it, everyone just says that was the best thing that they've, they've done and they were the ones with the eyes being <laughs> opened up and they were the ones learning and, and being taught you know, things that you just would never learn anywhere else other than an Indigenous community. And it's it's something that, you know, that my life sort of just the time factor, which is a priority too, so I need to sort that out in my own, my own life, is, you know, it's a week away. So I need to get back out um, and get regrounded and, you know, find time to, to let your, your own mind wander in a different way. Mm. Um, but it is, it, they're an amazing organisation. They do some brilliant work and it's, it's, they're now sort of looking at, they've got more and more research on the impact of what they're doing too now and it is, it, it is certainly making a difference. Mm. Well, most non-Indigenous Australians don't get to have that experience and it's probably a, a very important part of educating everyone else. And, of course, closing the gap has been on the agenda for, well, years. Where did you see the biggest gaps? On, on so many different fronts. So, you know, I, I'm not too sure where to start answering that one. Like, I had my eyes opened even further recently when, when Cricket Australia set out a, a number of recommendations around Jan 26. Um, so we have we have a, a committee within Cricket Australia called NATSICAC, which is the um, national committee for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders within the game. And the resounding... Um, comments being made by by the committee um, within cricket land is that Jan 26 is probably their, is their most hurtful and impactful day in a lot of ways and they, they said it would be just nice to say Jan 26. We, we love cricket on that day, we want to be involved in cricket but, but can we do that just to make it a, a happier day? And they're like, oh, seems very reasonable. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that was one of eight recommendations that went through to um, to the Big Bash Club and it was my eye, my eyes being opened was to the, the communication that then came back to Cricket Australia and myself as sort of the, the spokesperson for the committee and for Cricket Australia on that, on just how polarising this topic can still be for some people. It was and the huge. reason why I'm still... It was, it was unbelievable. I, you know, I... Well, and, and the pushback for you personally, and, and I know that some people brought up that, that the fact you've got an Australia Day honour bestowed on you two years earlier. Would, did that surprise mm. you? Not, um, not the yeah, honour, the pushback. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, to, to, to some degree, yes, and to some degree, no. I think the way, how, how political we're going to get here, Stephanie, <laughs> the way the world is at the moment is um, it's very easy for media and politics to try and polarise people to, to get their point across. So mm. there's no, we've lost the ability just to sit back, sit down and have a really respectful conversation about things. So you're either pro this or pro that, you're, you know, you're right or you're left, you're black or you're white or you're, you know, but there's nothing in between. Mm. And I think that's, that was probably the most disappointing thing is that you, you just felt as if you couldn't 
couldn't have a nice conversation about it. And when you can't have that respectful space, then it becomes really hard to actually make it easier for people. And, and, it, and it pushes people away from wanting to put themselves in that, that situation. And I guess that's why they, <laughs> they are so harsh on you um, mm. to begin with. So, yeah, you've got to, yeah, you've got to have a bit of thick skin about you, that's for sure. And yeah, I suppose you've got to share it around a little bit too. And that's what we certainly... Mm. Was probably one of the big lessons as well. But yeah, it was um, it it took the wind out of me. To be honest, it was it was it was a tough one because I, I I wasn't expecting the level of it. But at the same point in time, it, it, it once I sort of got past the impact, it was it was quite galvanising for me because I, I realised just how far we do have to go. And so it it probably made me even more determined in so many ways. Yeah, to keep the fight going. And, and perhaps uh, just reminded you, uh, gave you renewed awareness of how much of a voice for change you have in that position, uh, particularly within cricket and on the board of Cricket Australia. Where, where do you feel cricket sits in that spectrum? How open and accepting is the game for for any minority group? And, and I can say that at the New South Wales Cricket Awards, uh, must be about a month ago as we speak, uh, it was quite wonderful interviewing Rachel Haynes uh, when she got, she got numerous awards and asking about her plans and she spoke quite openly about her partner and her expecting a baby and it was mm-hmm. so normal and so wonderful and it felt like a very inclusive room. Is that how you feel cricket is across yeah. the border? Is there still work to do? No, still work to, to do. A little bit of A and B again here, Steph. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and, you know, I, we've just finished a three-day strategy retreat with Cricket Australia and I think one of the, the pleasing things from my side was a lot of the discussion in around, obviously, the game itself and national teams and the like, but just how how much we know that sport can be a vehicle for social change and that there is... The, the, the kids growing up now, what are we up to? Gen X, I think it is. <laughs> and the rest. <laughs> they are so much more self-aware of these this, these spaces than what we are. And if, if we're not cognizant of that, that they will be the ones pushing back very, very quickly on environmental LGBTI rights or, you know, whatever it may be. So I think the cricket space, particularly from a Cricket Australia perspective, is very mindful and very keen to be be a leader in, in, in these areas and, and have that conversation and allow, not just have the conversation, but get the right voices in the room. So if it is listening to younger people, if it is listening to um, Indigenous people, they're the voices we want to hear from a little bit more about how we can make it better. And it's not just us oldies at the table going, well, maybe we should do this, which, which mm. might be a nice thought, but might be completely off, off, the, um, off the right track. So I think from, from top, yes, there is, is where we're definitely wanting to be better. And I think most people want to be better. It's just about trying to find the right way to do it. And, and I guess that's our job as a national body to try and find that way and, and hopefully um, get, get it out to, to club land. And I think clubs are they're all in different spaces um, themselves. But I think most people just want to make sure that everyone that rocks up to their, their club room door feels, you know, open and confident enough to, to knock on it, not just knock on it, come in, play, and, and be happy to stay around too. Mm. So busy, MJ. So much work going on, so much to think about, so many issues to address. But you are about to jump on a flight to the UK. What's waiting for you over there? Uh, yeah, some of cricket. I almost feel like I'm back working again, even though I was, you know, <laughs> obviously worked for Fox over the summer. But um, yeah, got my regular contract with Sky Sky Cricket, and they're they're wonderful to work with. So we've got the women's internationals, India, England, into the the new hundred, men's and women's, mm-hmm. and then the first two tests 
between India and England men, which I'm thoroughly looking forward to. So a little bit of uh, T20, 100, ODI and, and Test Match cricket over two months, which, um, yeah, very excited for. Exciting times. If I can get my Almost, jab. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> get that jab. Almost ops yeah. normal. I mentioned the OAM bestowed on you in 2019. You were put on the ICC Women's Committee in the same year. That's a huge honour. Uh, so many accolades, so many achievements. Anything still left on your career bucket list? Oh, career bucket list. Um, I wasn't expecting that one, Steph. Um, <laughs> oh, look, it's, it's, like, I'd like to say like a Boxing Day test for men and women, but then I, I don't know if that's, I don't know if I'm thinking big enough there, to be honest. <laughs> um, I might have to come back to you on that one. We're going to have to catch up again. That sounds like a great plan. We'll let you uh, <laughs> go, go, go and get your vaccinations, get ahead to the UK yeah. and, and we'll catch up with you on your return. But for now, Melanie Jones, so many achievements. Congratulations on the impressive road travelled thus far and all the very best for what lies ahead. Thank you so much for being today's Trailblazer. Steph, thank you and thank you for blazing the trail for me.